This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, I hope you enjoy some of our most downloaded episodes on the current lending environment. I'm also curious just how the industry has changed um, over the last couple of years. Back in 2018, I remember being in a lot of different real estate meetups and people wondering what inning we were in um, as far as the market cycle and everybody was waiting for the hammer to drop or the bottom to fall out, whatever your favorite term is. And then COVID hits and we all run for the hills for a little bit and huge unknown. That ends up not being maybe as bad a headwind as we had anticipated for the industry. I'm curious from your side on the the lending side, how did that process unfold during COVID? What are some of the the maybe what ifs that we missed that are positive and or negative? And, And where do things sit today in your opinion? Well, when COVID first hit, nobody honestly knew it was going to happen. So the lenders that were basically backed by Wall Street and big bank money, the money just disappeared. I would have frantic phone calls, you know, hey, can you save this deal by next Tuesday, you know, being the Thursday beforehand, it's like, you know, I need 14 days to underwrite and you're trying to get me to close in four. You know, it's just not going to happen. I watched a lot of earnest deposit money. I watched a, a lot of just general money just disappear, you know, in the first six months of what happened during COVID. And then we really got to see who is controlling the money. When you have a private lender, you really figure out whether or not they're private whether or not their funds are backed by bonds or, you know, big banks. And that really opened up my eyes, especially now as to who can really fund the deals. And it kind of changed my marketing a little bit to be able to target syndicators in this particular business really gives you an idea of how much money there is out there in the private space. As bad as COVID was, it gave us in the lending industry like, okay, the real players are A, B, and C. Not throwing my name into that mix. I'm still a small fish in a very large pond, but it gave me the idea of who I was really competing with. And, you know, we just watched what Zillow tried to do with buying up single family homes. It didn't work. And I think when we got through most of COVID, a lot of that institutional capital realize that this isn't just the greener side of the fence and that you need to be here or you're not going to get the phone calls. So I think in general, we might've came out better, you know, on my end on the private debt side, because the big banks got scared. Will they come back? Cause they kind of saw how really the industry didn't get shaken up as much as they could, but I think they're still a little shy and scared about it. In my estimation, that seems like a healthy thing. Whenever you have an industry get centralized, you always worry what's the systemic risks are being introduced into the market. And you can see that in the Great Recession of 2008 with the mortgage-backed securities and how that introduced a variable that nobody really could see at the time, and yet in retrospect seems so obvious. Do you think that maybe we dodged a bullet by not going through a wave of consolidation on the debt side during COVID and you didn't have a Blackstone or a Morgan Stanley or somebody like that get a wild hair and go accumulate hundreds of these smaller shops? Absolutely. And it didn't just wouldn't have stopped in the debt portion. We were probably two or three months away from, you know, them realizing that the COVID would not hit this industry as hard as they thought it was going to. And we just needed one multi-billion dollar hedge fund to just start walking down Main Street and buying up apartment buildings. We would have been having a very different conversation, you know, had they would have come to that realization sooner. And it's not just our industry. It's like, what would have happened with the renters? You know, if Blackstone comes through and they just did this, I think it was Blackstone or, or one of the large hedge funds, they walked through Pennsylvania 
and bought up hundreds of single family homes at one time. And if you look at that area and you do a price comparison for rentals, they've raised the prices up to 30%. That's not what we serve. That's not the industry that it should be. You know, our job is to give people homes, you know, in the syndication space. My job is to lend money for syndicators like you to provide good homes for people. So, and at a federal rate that they can afford, we're seeing it now with the single family homes being completely ran up in prices. Who's to say that wouldn't happen with single with multifamily as well? Well, and in many ways, I think multifamily just moves a little bit slower because it's not quite as transactional. And even there, in some of the local markets that we transacted, December was a record month, both for number of transactions, for total volume, dollar volume. We're seeing pricing records fall. It seems like that wave is only continuing to build in the multifamily space, just like we've seen in the headlines for single family. Of course, you know, everybody's in the business to provide value and the more value you get, the more rent you should be able to charge. And of course, that's the idea, you know, one that we all have to work by, but to have somebody or a big entity come in and just be a number and raise those prices without providing the value to give renters a better lifestyle, life standard for that money could have been a very big concern. You know, when you get, when you have to pay for nothing, just because because you have to play, you know, placate the shareholders and get your stock price up. It's a different conversation. So what's going to happen? This is what always happens on the lending side is once one person or one lender has a great product, everybody copies it. And so what happens is other banks are going to start copying this. And then as investors start seeing the people who buy these loans, once they see that they're receiving a lot of demand, they're going to start increasing the spread. And so once that happens, then your interest rate might be higher than it is on a fixed rate product. And so it's all about demand and supply. I mean, I think that's one of the advantages of coming to somebody who's sort of in the market day in and day out is they sort of understand what the best loan product is in today's market for you. So, you know, say the listener just closed on a property in the last few months with what you know about the lending environment and just a real estate environment in general, what do you expect what to happen, say, five years from now when they're looking to exit, you know, four or five years from now with what will interest rates be then? Or do you expect or do you have any idea and what should they be thinking about? Nobody really tries to predict interest rates too much. I mean, the sure. the hard thing, I mean, there's definitely forecasts for LIBOR and SOFR and tenure treasury and stuff like that. But overall, flat to down is what most people are predicting. So that has impacted the reversion cap rate. So the question I get a lot from investors is like, okay, when I sell this deal in five years, what am I going to be able to sell it for? And the typical answer was 10 basis points per year. And if you're buying at a five now, you should probably use a five and a half cap in your five. But now what we're seeing is cap rates continue to compress because interest rates have gone down. And so before, let's say the average cap rate was 5% in DFW, now it's probably four and a half. Now the interest rates have gone down. And so I would love to use, like if you use a six, six and a half percent residual cap and you can still win the deal and the numbers work, then hats off. That's probably a good deal. But in order to compete right now, you're probably in that five to five and a half percent range. What else in our personal underwriting are you going to want to see that we've taken account for or anything else that we haven't mentioned that the listeners should be accounting for when they're underwriting these properties before they come to get lending? Well, a couple of things like right now, we are seeing rents be essentially flat. And so in that first year, unless you're way under market, most people are not underwriting sort of that 3% organic rent growth in year one. So I would keep that flat. I probably build in a little bit more for concessions and bad debt until some of the eviction moratorium stuff 
goes away, hopefully. That's what I would say sort of on the underwriting piece. From the lending piece, what's more important is Fannie and Freddie, they essentially have the same net worth and liquidity guidelines that they had before. So your net worth needs to be equal to or greater than the loan amount. Your liquidity needs to be 10% of the loan amount or higher. That's post-close liquidity of the guarantors. So we like to see everybody's balance sheet up front. And then right now, the bigger issue is really the equity raise. So the people who, when they're going in, submitting a deal to the listing broker, the listing broker will call us and say, look, number one, can they qualify for the debt? But number two, what is your comfort level for this person raising the equity? Because it's not just the 20, 25% that you need to raise. It's also that additional nine to 12 months of PNI, which is an additional 5%. Can you raise that on top of it? And you're probably going to have to raise your rehab on top of that. So as long as you feel comfortable doing all those things, then that's when I can sort of give you the check mark and tell the listing broker, Hey, this guy's for real. He can qualify for the debt. He can raise the equity and he should win the property. Is that going to be from pre-existing relationships with you, uh, you know, or the lender? I mean, how you're going to know that? You know, I know the listener's thinking right now, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm trying, I'm just about to get into my first syndication. How do I establish that relationship with James or whoever that lender is? So, so they can give me that check mark. A couple conversations before the deal, for sure. So what we usually ask for is we'll sit down with someone, review their personal financial statement, anybody who else is going to sign with you. So any other loan guarantors, we're going to speak with them, sort of go through their PFS and schedule real estate, make sure there's no issues. Once we have that sort of ironed out, then we know that you can qualify for that loan. And then we make sure that the property can qualify for that loan. We sort of check all the boxes first and make sure you're qualified, properties qualified, and that when we take it in the Fannie and Freddie, there won't be any surprises. Are there any, anything else you'd like to see for somebody to be prepared for a worse downturn? Liquidity is always probably the, the biggest thing. Fannie and Freddie required 10%, but you can use that. Let's say you had a million dollars in liquidity and you sign on 10 deals. Well, you can use that same million dollars across all those Fannie Mae loans. But in reality, that liquidity can only be used once. So I would rather somebody take it a little bit slower and make sure their deals are comfortable and reviewing how the property, like if it did dip in occupancy to 80, 85%, you know, how many months of reserve do you have? Like in March, that was the calculation. In March, the calculation was, okay, if, you know, it goes to 30 or 40% delinquent on our rent roll and we just pay the expenses, how long can we survive? And so there was a lot of, a lot of syndicators who had plenty of money at the property level and on their personal balance sheet. And so that gives a lot of comfort to the lender and then also probably to your investors that you have the balance sheet to weather the storm. And I mean, let me give you an example of a deal that essentially was sort of along the coast, got hit by a hurricane, and it actually wasn't in a floodplain. So they didn't have flood insurance. So the general partner actually had to front the money to get the units back online. And once he got them back online, he got the property sold. But that was a big loan to the partnership. And if the general partner didn't have a sizable balance sheet to do that, then a lot of those LPs probably would have lost their money in that deal. What are a couple ways that you've seen people get creative with lending to just help explode their growth? Really value add, right? So syndicators are all about value add. You know, my experience in, in funding these deals, really it's, it's going after bridge debt at the beginning. If the sponsor really identifies a good value add asset and there's a lot of potential for upside, 
you can definitely come in with a bridge loan at you know 75 LTV and maybe 100% construction, right? So it's essentially going to be like it's going to be like a bird deal, but for you know multifamily, if you want to think of it like that, right? You're essentially fixing it, rehabbing it, stabilizing it, and and refinancing. So if you're you know if you're a syndicator listening to this, if you can really use bridge debt creatively in addition to an equity raise. And by putting those two together, you can really come into a deal very strong. And by the time that you fix up the property and hopefully underwrite conservatively, you still have a lot of upside to capture. But once the property is, you know, stabilized, once you know, refi and, and hold it, you should be able to, to capitalize on even a cash out refi, disperse some of that equity back, and obviously lower lower your rate and um, and get better terms on it. So, but again, you know, on the on the value add side, still going to be you know probably a, a twelve to twenty four month bridge loan, depending on how big the project is. Right, if it's a fifty unit building and needs you know a million bucks in you know capex, then you know we'll, we'll probably shoot for for a twenty four month initial plus you know some six month extensions here and there. So. Eric, what's the hardest part of this lending process or working with, you know, a commercial investor, you know, a syndicator? Yes. It's just about the documents. I got to say that the delay between me getting the documents and, and me submitting it is pretty much zero, right? I submit it like it's within the hour. But if people are taking, you know, an hour to get or, or sorry, the week to get documents back to me um, that are critical. And, and I mentioned that in the beginning, it makes the process way more difficult than it ever needs to be. Because as I look at it, if something goes wrong and we wasted a week in the beginning, we don't have that week on the back end when something actually does go wrong. <laughs> so I want to make that very clear, If especially with large transactions like this. Because when you get the appraisal back, that's when the box kind of opens up, so to say, of potential issues to deal with. For any syndicator listening, don't lag behind on investor docs or, or anything else because it, it just makes the deal much more much more stressful than it needs to be because now everyone's anxious about the timelines and the contract and losing EMD and all this. So Nice. No, I appreciate you elaborating on that or just hammering that home a little bit. No doubt about it. You want to be as prompt as possible through the entire process because you need that extra week sometimes, right? No, absolutely. So how do you how do you like to see operators preparing for a downturn when they're presenting themselves, you know, for a loan or for debt? Yeah. I mean as far as you know, a deal package, you know, so to say, or a pitch, you know, to, you know, for either potential investors or for debt, you want to really make sure you showcase the asset and business plan is you have the, the entrance, the execution and the exit. Those are the three stages. If, if you can't give me every detail about those, then it's, you know, there's probably something, a gap in your model or something that's missing. As far as just screening debt, it's pretty easy, you know, getting in an offering memorandum, you know, two years income statements, current rent roll. And then if it's a value add deal, please explain what that value add is, what the as NOI is going to be, and then, you know, what the, the as stabilized value is going to be given area cap rates or what, what you estimate to be your, your cap rate and, and your exit, whether it be in, you know, three or five years or, or what. But if you have those basic documents, it's, it's pretty easy to, you know, come in and say, Hey, is, is this something that, is this a deal you guys are interested in? This is a value add, you know, 50 unit in blah, blah, blah. You know, here are the docs. And, and at that point, it's, it's pretty easy to screen. When you have a low interest rate environment, obviously it's going to make debt cheaper and thus it's going to make properties more competitive, basically. So, you know, that's going to affect your cap rates naturally. As far as how that is going to, the tools that the FOMC uses, 
you obviously have your overnight lending rate, the rate that banks lend to each other that is kind of a target set by the FOMC. You also have QE, which we've seen 10 plus years ago and are seeing again now. And now Jerome Powell has basically said, hey, we're going to have this for another two years. So people now are seeing and now we have this yield curve that has steepened. And I think on Friday, it kind of probably hit, I think it was like 30 year hit like 2.4%. And so all we're hearing about now is inflation, right? That's all you see in the media. What is inflation and how does that affect the real estate investor? And so it's kind of like you've seen a lot of people pull out of these lower interest earning securities. They've got to make more in their dollar. The same is true for the lenders. Their dollar today is going to be worth less tomorrow, and thus they have to possibly raise rates. However, we have the other side of that where you have Powell saying, no, we're going to be buying $120 billion a month in securities, and that is going to keep rates low. And we're going to do that for the next two years. And inflation spikes and we hit 2.5% or even maybe 3%, I'm not sure exactly what he said in terms of the percentage, then that's fine. And inflation is good generally for the economy. The fact of the matter is, though, is that we're not going to see inflation like we did in the 1970s. We're not going to see that massive interest rate spike that we saw in the early 80s, uh, 1980, 81, 82. It's just not going to happen. We're living in a different world right now. We have globalization that is completely, I mean, any money that we get from this stimulus, this 1.9 billion stimulus, a lot of it's going to go back to China. It's going to be pushing goods back to us. And we have digitization these days that is going to keep prices relatively low. The competition out there in the market to in this race to zero that we see on, you know, marketplaces like Amazon is kind of taken over. And so I just don't see those massive interest rate spikes. And especially with the Fed buying all these securities over the next 24 months, I don't really see it. And so I think that a lot of news outlets have kind of dialed back all their talk of inflation in the past week or two. But up until then, all you heard were people talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. How's it going to affect us? How's it going to affect our debt? And are we really going to be scrambling to find quality, good interest rates? Yeah, no, that's some great information and food for thought, no doubt about it. And I know you mentioned yield curve and inflation. And I just like, take, you know, 30 seconds. What is yield curve? Somebody hasn't heard of that before. Why is that important, you know, to us in real estate? Yeah, so the yield curve, you can just look at it as all of the, I don't know, you can look at the yield curve as the treasury interest rates. So going from anywhere from short term to long term, and obviously on your shorter duration securities, you're going to have less risk and thus less interest that you're going to earn on those. The longer duration ones, your 30 years, you're going to be, you know, then we're in a low interest rate environment right now. So two, two and a half percent. And when you have a steepening yield curve, it's generally a sign of good economic conditions to come when you have an inverted yield curve and you start to have people kind of dumping their shorter term securities, that is not generally a good sign. So, Mm -hmm. and we saw that 
at the very beginning of COVID, we saw that yield curve kind of turn or invert or turn upside down a little bit. And it was no surprise. I mean, what was coming? Well, you know, on that same thought, but even more in depth, I'd love your opinion about just what you see for the next six to 12 months, just in the real estate market and then maybe also in the lending as well. Yeah. So in the real estate market, it's next six to 12 months. I think that we're going to see, and we kind of saw this over the past couple of years anyway, but you have more institutional investors that are going to be hunting for cash on cash. So the guys out there, the scrappy 30 year olds that are trying to invest in, you know, a mobile home park with a couple of partners, the guys that are doing the single family rental portfolios outside of Kansas City, you know, that maybe work at Google, but they make a lot in tech and they want to diversify and they're really interested in real estate. Those institutional investors, they're gunning for those assets now. They're not just all about the office properties in the 250 unit multifamilies, there's been a lot of capital that has been flowing into these different assets. And so the competition for those is going to increase. And that's what I see in real estate world is just, it's not like an asset has to be sexy to invest in it. It's not, it's just, it's going to be all about the returns from here on out. And people are seeking alpha anywhere. So yeah, that's what I see in the real estate market. As far as the lending market goes, I think that while we have a steepening yield curve, I don't think the interest rates are going to get too out of hand. I think that has indicated that maybe I'll learn different in the next 48 hours with this FOMC meeting going on. But I really just see interest rates staying relatively low, which, you know, can be a double edged sword for the investor. You know, it's great in terms of debt financing. But then again, it can make finding good quality assets harder to find. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 